got my coffee and today's guest here with me, so we're ready to roll. I'm Michael Hanf, Executive Partner at Taiwan Advisory. Welcome to our Circular Coffee Break podcast, where we will casually be talking about everything circular and beyond. We hope the podcast is interesting and insightful and provides new perspectives for you. If you would like to provide feedback, have improvement ideas or suggestions, please leave us a comment or drop us a note at info at And please remember to subscribe so that you keep up to date on future episodes. My guest today has a long history in circular economy and environmental sustainability. He state, his stated target is to cut global emissions by one gigaton during his career. We will get back to that hopefully later. He holds an uh, MSc in chemistry from TKK and he started his career as research chemist at VTT. That was in 2000. And since then, his profile actually counts 15 different roles that he has been holding. He is the father of Nestis Bioplastics, Biochemicals and Chemical Recycling Program, the author of Boru's Plastic to Bio concept, and had a short stint as the business development director at Dutsunit Activity Park. And that's something we will definitely come back later in this, in this podcast as it sticks out in the, in the CV. Uh, he has been the uh, principal at AFRU in the circular bioeconomy sector from 2018 to 21, and the CCO for Woodley until very recently, January 23. In addition to these roles, he's a micro angel with investments in nine bioeconomy companies, and I understand that number is changing continuously, so that this number um, is going up and down as we speak. Um, circular economy and green tech startups. He has been an advisor, co-founder and board member for companies like Camupac, uh, a digital deposit system for reusable products, Recyclo, a, a company looking at chemical recycling, uh, River Recycle, um, offering sustainable river cleaning services, and Woodley, um, providing wood-based, carbon-neutral and recyclable packaging material. And if that wouldn't be enough, on top of that, he is also the founder and CEO of November Consulting, where he's looking at industrializing degrowth, another topic we will be coming back. So I, I think we will have a very long list of things to talk about today. I'm looking forward to jump into all of these in today's episode. And thank you for joining me on the show today, uh, Tommy Newman. Thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to, pleasure to join the, the podcast. It's really great. Perfect. Um, a long list of things you've been doing in your career, um, very much linked to circularity and, and environmental sustainability, and your set target naturally links directly to that. Um, but let's maybe start with the obvious. How did you end up becoming the business development director of Dutsunit Activity Park? And, and maybe for the listeners that are not familiar, Dutsunit Activity Park is a company with a number of indoor activity parks, basically for all ages, uh, where you can, I don't know, do crazy things. I've been there with my kids uh, and, and for some events, it's, it's really a place where you can be active in unexpected ways. Let's yeah, put it you can way. test your limits. So how, how did you end up there? Well, that was uh, after my, my after my five years stint at Neste. Yeah, uh, I joined Neste to initiate their bioplastics, biochemicals, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually chemical <coughs> recycling programs. And uh, after five years, I had basically uh, achieved certain milestones that mm -hmm. I felt were in the in the scope of doing uh, in, uh, 
uh, in regards to business development and strategy wise, mm-hmm. and and I felt that it's it's a good good time to do something else. Yeah, I left the company, and uh, at that time I, was, I started to think that I've been working for 15 years in the industry, uh, been flying around the world, um, joining meetings, sleeping nights in hotels, and what had I missed? I had missed doing sports. Mm-hmm. So I started developing my own concept uh, relating to, to small indoor activity parks, mm-hmm. really small ones, around 400 square meter. And, and what happened was that when I was looking for funding, I, I called a few friends here and there, and one of them happened to be on the board of, uh, of, uh, of the Dude Summit uh, company. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that, this sounds very interesting. Let's talk to Jarno. Yeah. And then I had a, had a discussion with Jarno Lasala and, uh, and eventually uh, with the CEO of uh, Dusseldorf Activity Parks. And I started as the business development director there. Uh, joined the company for, with the aim to develop more parks, with the mm. aim to grow the company. And uh, that's how it started. Cool. Cool. And that, it's, it's definitely a, a good way to get a different perspective, I think. Yeah. Uh, I was 42 when I started making vaults. So. <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting. I mean, the, the paths life takes you to, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So. But I mean, outside, outside of that, um, you, you have been throughout your career, you have been working a lot around plastics, like plastic production, circulation, plastic alternatives. Um, and you're arguably one of the leading influencers in, in Europe in, in that topic. Now, plastics is everywhere. It's, it's a very important material. Uh, it's used, we're using it in our everyday life, just looking around here. It's, you, you cannot imagine a world without plastics. At the same time, it's basically <clears throat> creating a lot of problems and a lot of harm on the environment, animals, water, um, the planet as a whole, so to say. Now, let me ask you a maybe not so trivial question. Um, what does it take for us to solve the plastic equation, the plastic problem, if you want, um, I want to state it negatively. Meaning from, from your experience, what are some of the best practices? What are some of the good things you've seen? Um, before we switched on the recording, we talked a lot about the fact that the world has come a long way since we met the first time and, and uh, since, since we all have started to work in this area. I mean, what, what's your experience? What do you see uh, out there and, and where do we still have our homework to do? Yeah. I think there are two, <coughs> two crucial things we need to change. One is funding mm-hmm. and one is uh, incineration. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the plastics to buy concept I wrote earlier, uh, I calculated a rough uh, capex requirement. Um, it's not only in, in infrastructure, but also in education of about 50 billion mm-hmm. euros or, or dollars per year that is required to change the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would enable the education, the collection, the sorting, uh, the building of recycling units and the incorporation of bio-based feedstock into the plastic stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, building that system will take 10 years or 15 years <coughs> with that 50 billion dollar investment per year. But when we achieve it, gradually we will reach uh, decoupling fossil feedstock. Mm-hmm. 
we will be using primarily recycling as, as, the, as the tool and recycled plastics, recycled materials as the feedstock. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will save more than $100 billion a year on the feedstock cost. Mm-hmm. So that makes, that makes it affordable, that makes, mm-hmm. it, uh, makes the investment worth it. And uh, it, it, it also shows that it doesn't really matter if it's 10 years or 15 years to achieve it, because we will save so much money eventually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Incineration is essential because we have built, uh, at least in Europe, in Finland, for example, we've built massive incineration units that are now operating on plastics. Mm-hmm. We are yeah. burning all the plastics that we should recycle. We're generating a lot of CO2. If we would divert that plastic to recycling, Mm-hmm. We would not be uh, concerned about the. Uh, just just yesterday, the uh, the head of uh, Finnish Plastics Industry Association, he said that, uh, or the federation, he said that we, there is not enough plastics for recycling, and the reason for that is incineration. Mm-hmm. Many, many countries yeah. are still also, especially outside Europe, they are still shipping material uh, to developing countries, mm-hmm. yeah. and that must stop. There's massive, uh, massive amounts of uh, feedstock in the developing countries that could be re, uh, repurposed. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I think there's it's a multifaceted problem naturally. I mean, there there's not one one solution there. Um, when we when we've been working now in the in the plastic space, I, what, what we've been hearing often is the use cases for recycled plastics are not there yet so mm-hmm. so there's there's not enough use cases uh, for plastics but there's also a problem with mechanical recycling for example in the way we collect plastics at the moment because yeah. you cannot use the recycled plastics for all the purposes anymore mm-hmm. once uh, once you create mixed plastics uh, out of those and then you you talk about chemical recycling you talk about other solutions which are in development and which might get us there uh, at at some point but as you said which require investment which require focus Um, the other side I I think and and that's maybe also a very interesting topic you you mentioned education Mm. and uh, again we talked earlier about the fact when the pandemic started everyone said like oh we cannot reduce uh, travel because the world will end and then the pandemic came and we stopped travel and the world is still there and since since last year the energy crisis has been hitting us due to the day the horrible war in the Ukraine um, and everyone said okay without energy we cannot survive now we are reducing energy uh, for for obvious reasons and we are still continuing the same is is true with consumption the same is true with recycling and, and all of this how do you see that we can change people's mindset in recycling in basically having this mindset of I need to be part of the solution. I need to accept inconvenience because I I think that very often is the problem. It's the inconvenience that we don't want to take that keeps us away from from doing the right things. It's it's actually really much a a mindset issue. We think it's an inconvenience even when actually solutions might be more simple, more easy Mm -hmm. than we think. Uh, If I would now write plastics to bio again, I would definitely incorporate reuse as mm-hmm. 50% of the solution. Because reuse, uh, extending the life of products beyond the current average uh, lifetime, 
uh, is the fastest and easiest way to reduce mm -hmm. material consumption. Uh, if you now look at me, the white shirt I'm wearing is 12 years old. Mm -hmm. The gray shirt, which is pretty similar to yours, this one is, is over 15 years mm -hmm. old. Yeah. My jeans, I repaired them this morning. It took me five minutes to repair mm -hmm. my, mm -hmm. my broken jeans. It would have taken me about two hours to go shopping and buy new yeah. jeans. Yeah. So the inconvenience, we think that, yeah, let's just buy something new, uh, is convenient. But on the contrary, we spent less time and money reusing <clears throat> and repairing things. Yeah, no, I, I see. I see your. I see your point. I, I think. I think it's a very. It's a very good point. Um, at the same time, let, let me give you an example. I had an old stereo that I wanted yeah. to repair, and I was driving around the city yeah. to find a place to repair that. And every shop I went to, the answer I got was like, "Yeah, you know, it's more expensive to repair it. Just buy a new one off the shelf over here." Mm. So, so I think it's also. Also, that that we're not costing in yeah. a lot of the a, a lot of the cost mm -hmm. that that uh, we're, we're creating with that. But I, it, it's a it's a very good point. I mean, if yeah. you want you, if you want it um, as as the last couple of years have shown, if you want to achieve something, if you want to do something, then then it's it's definitely possible. Yeah. A few years back, I wrote another concept called end of linear economy, where mm -hmm. I suggested uh, a zero point one percent monthly increase on uh, interest rates. Mm -hmm. Now, we have actually achieved that currently <laughs> in Europe, <laughs> but it became, a, it became an abrupt issue now. Mm -hmm. uh, if we would do it systematically, mm -hmm. and I've been promoting this uh, to basically all the leading world, world uh, economy banks, all the national banks, and I've been discussing with the UK Treasury mm -hmm. about this, for example. Uh, the idea there, there is that if we do it gradually, the consumers, the industry, businesses, companies, organizations, they gradually will realize that in five years' time, the interest rates will make linear buying, buying new stuff all the time, it will be very expensive. Yeah, yeah. And then they will start to think, what kind of services will be needed to change this mm -hmm. so that everything doesn't become so expensive? They will start offering reuse, they will start offering repair, refurbishing, yeah, that yeah. kind of services. Yeah. Also for electronics. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was talking to uh, about this issue with my wife last year when our dishwasher broke and we bought a new one. We bought a new one with, uh, with a long guarantee and uh, the seller said that it should last you for 20 years. Mm -hmm. I contacted the CEO of this uh, German company and uh, with a calculation that if you were to do this uh, with a system that you don't actually sell the device, but you lease it, and the lease price per month includes, let's say, five mm -hmm. repairs during 20 mm -hmm. years, it would be cheaper for the individual. You, as a producer, maintain the ownership of the hardware. Mm -hmm. It comes back to you after 20 years, mm -hmm. and you can still refurbish it after that. And the CEO said they are piloting that in, in Germany. Mm -hmm. That kind of models will definitely come in, in the electronics sector, where the hardware uh, stays as it is, but you just change the, the software, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, think, I think what we will see is, is also other aspects of that. So in, in some of our projects, we've been discussing with customers about the fact that recycled material in many areas is very difficult to come by. Yeah. 
So if you can make sure that your own products are coming back to you at the end of life and you can basically harvest the, the, the resources, harvest the materials, that will be a huge question uh, going forward as, as a lot of these materials are not uh, available uh, anymore in that, in that context. So, so I, I think there's a lot uh, talking for that. At the same time, I don't know, I, I don't remember exactly anymore what uh, car manufacturer it was, but it was a CEO of a huge car manufacturing company who said, our refurbishing plant is the most profitable we have. And if you think about it, it's logical yeah. Yeah. That, that it is that way because you're, you're selling the refurbished product maybe at a discount, but still at a very high price without having all the production cost, with all, so, with all uh, having all of, the, all of the cost factors that you normally have. So it should be a no-brainer uh, in, in many cases. It unfortunately still is not yeah. uh, in, in that sense. Um, you, you are involved with, with some startups or growth companies uh, that, that are in this space. How, how do you see that area developing, uh, the development of new solutions, of, of new, of new uh, approaches, specifically on that intersection between startups, growth companies that are moving very fast, but don't necessarily have the possibility to scale globally uh, to a wider audience. And on the other side, the CEO you talk to, um, who most likely has a lot of legacy business um, that, that they have to take care of, which very often scares them away from testing new business models, testing new approaches and services in the market. How do you see that? Uh, yeah, well, when it comes to the startup scene, they are, of course, uh, often looking at disrupting mm. regular businesses with, mm. with new solutions, with new technologies. And, and there I see that uh, there's a lot of interest um, and pressure also from the big brand owners mm. that uh, things have to change. Um, consumers will not accept single-use materials packaging for very long in many, many, time, many applications. So applications where you are able to employ uh, reuse packaging, you need to be able to recover the material somehow. Mm. And that, that, that's where you come with uh, different kinds of uh, return schemes, buyback schemes, mm, mm, digital mm. deposits that Kamobak, for example, is working on. And, mm. and these become more and more interesting to the industry. Mm. And, uh, and when looking at that scene, uh, we've, we've come across players that are actually also leasing plastics. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to buy the granulate, but you lease the material. Mm. And then you don't, as a startup, you're you're short of cash often, yeah. so you don't need to buy, you don't need to invest fifty thousand euros or hundred thousand yeah. euros in, yeah. in plastics, but you just lease it with a monthly, monthly payment, mm. and and your own operations are lighter to to scale in that way. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Now let, let's maybe switch to to another topic. Um, before today's session, you sent me a message with with an image and and a note. The, the image said, industrializing degrowth. And the note basically said, let's talk about this on the podcast. So let's do that. Let's talk about this. Um, when you talk about industrializing degrowth, um, what does that mean for you? What, what does that concept mean? And what are the steps required? And related to that, what are opportunities and, and downsides we, we might see from that? Yeah. I started to think about degrowth uh, about five years ago when I left Neste. Uh, 
and uh, started to to really think what do I need besides what have I missed and uh, and I started to reduce my own consumption mm-hmm. and uh, uh, during my career my maximum salary level was in 2010 2011 mm-hmm. that kind of uh, period and since then I've cut my salary by 60 percent mm-hmm. I still have a good life mm-hmm. uh, I have a family of four people uh, two te- teenagers uh, we have a lot of needs in the family. Mm-hmm. We have a house built in 2012. I'm paying my mortgage, mm-hmm. uh, but still uh, we manage. Yeah. Um, we've learned that we don't need that much. Mm-hmm. We actually have excess. So, how do we take that to the to the next level? And uh, um, for the last five years, I've thought a lot about different sy- systemic changes. Mm-hmm. And I've come to the conclusion that uh, basically all smart people eventually realize that reducing consumption is a must. Mm-hmm. Degrowth makes sense. Uh, we've learned from the pandemic, as you said, we've learned from uh, the war mm-hmm. that we adjust mm-hmm. as human beings and as uh, national economies. We can uh, restructure the way we work, the industry, the economy, and uh, the only way to do it is to attract the industry to scale mm-hmm. it. There is degrowth is is a word which many people are afraid of. They think that mm-hmm. they will it will take a lot from them. Yeah. They will not be able to do things anymore. Now, actually, there are good examples that talk about the contrary. There mm-hmm. is, for example, a a small town in uh, in Denmark, Sundborg, where the city council was was provided the opportunity to uh, optimize the energy in in the in the city mm-hmm. with a three 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 year payback time. Yeah, and people are now actually making money with that. They are the energy savings allow them to save money mm-hmm. on a, on a local basis. Uh, if we start reusing things, if we start recycling things more, more efficiently on an industrial level, it will mean that um, we don't spend so much money on materials. Mm-hmm. We don't exploit natural resources. Mm-hmm. We don't spoil the forest. We don't spoil uh, the environment, the nature. And uh, companies that will uh, take this uh, as part of their strategy into into an industrial level, will become more competitive, mm-hmm. and they they will gain market share, because if you are able to reduce consumption, and make your own consumers wealthier, you are a future leader of the industry. Mm-hmm. And once the industry starts to compete with each other, degrowth starts to grow. Mm-hmm. So, so that makes it makes it really intriguing to see how far can we actually take it. Now, if we take it on a global level, the economy needs to be restructured. Because if everyone saves a lot of money, everyone everyone becomes rich, then we have excess money. What do we do, mm-hmm. do with that? Mm-hmm. That will cause monetary issues. 
So the you know, global economy needs to be adjusted. But I'll, I'll leave that to the economists <laughs> to think about. That's kind of their problem. <laughs> it, it's a very interesting concept. We, um, we actually developed a, a circular business uh, assessment together with WWF uh, Germany. And one of the questions we're asking is, what do you as a company do to reduce consumption of your customers? And that did lead to quite interesting discussions with the with the companies we have been doing the assessment for, because the, the, the common mindset of a company is like, I have to sell more products. I have to basically make my customers consume more in order for me to be successful, which I, I fully agree with you is not is not really the case. I mean, you, you see you see companies nowadays offering repair services, refurbishing services, and they're as successful. They're making even more money. They're even more profitable. Yeah. Their revenue might be lower, but the profitability goes up because they 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 can they can optimize that when they offer services or when they offer refurbishing and they gain market share. Yes, and that is more important than just revenue. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. I, I think it, it's back to something you said earlier. It's a mindset. It's a mindset thing. And and one one thing, and it would be interesting to get your take on that as well. I mean, a lot of the things we're talking about are systemic. So uh, one company can do something, one consumer can do something, but unless you basically anchor it in changes in the system. Uh, it will not have the, the large effect and it might just fizzle out at some point in time. Um, and the big question is, how do we drive that systemic change? How do we get everyone on board, specifically in a divided world, like what we're seeing in, be it the US, be it Brazil, mm. but also in, in France and in many other places where where differing opinions are not just differing opinions, like in the old days where you would argue over a beer, but where it's where there's really a huge divide between yeah. how people see the world. How do you see that? What's your what's your thinking on that specifically when you think about degrowth, about yeah. these new systemic approaches to our life, basically to our world as it as it functions today? Last year, I started working with uh, several uh, psychologists mm -hmm. on the topic. Uh, I was building uh, a group to discuss the the idea of human mind and climate change. Mm -hmm. How do we adjust people's thinking? How do we, uh, sometimes if we push people to make a mm -hmm. decision, if we force them, they, they will reject. Mm -hmm. They will fight back. Uh, direct influencing doesn't always work. That's why we have things like marketing. Mm -hmm. We gradually make people realize themselves that this is a good thing. Mm -hmm. We need indirect influencing. Uh, where marketing plays a big role to, to make people aware that, uh, by the way, repairing, is, it just makes so much more sense than buying mm. a new car every three years. So uh, it, it's, uh, I think we underutilize the power of psychology. Mm. Uh, regulations do, do their part. That is a way of forcing, but uh, you get a lot of obje objection. Mm. When we get people to make the decision themselves, they are much more committed. And, mm. and that's where, yep. that's where this kind of... Uh, I was talking to about 50 people in the spring last year, yep. um, individually and in small groups. And, uh, and uh, we had really good, interesting discussions about the topic. Mm. But we, did, we didn't really come to a conclusion how to uh, really crack the bolt. 
But uh, one, one thing that uh, we discussed was culture. Mm-hmm. In big companies, for example, like Neste, uh, there's a lot of discussion about safety culture. Mm-hmm. Why don't we incorporate the idea of climate or nature culture yeah. into, into companies and organizations? How do we make uh, the world better in that respect? Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts with small things. Yeah, but yeah, once absolutely. once it's in your brain, once it's in in your spine, uh, it it becomes natural to you, mm. and you start avoiding uh, unsustainable practices. Yeah, absolutely, and and I mean that that's one of the things we're seeing. I mean we we've been we've been I think both have been working in this in this space now for for a while, and if you go back I don't know five ten years, the mindset was very different. Yeah. Um, uh, to, towards many of these topics, where, where you basically were a tree hugger, where you were like a, a green, a green, green fanatic, if you would talk about these topics. Nowadays, it's it's boardroom topics. Yeah. You you see many of the of the of the organizations that you would have never thought would talk about these topics, basically embracing these these topics. So from that point of view, I, I think that mindset shift is happening as, as we speak. Is it happening as fast as we would like it to happen? We can argue about that. <laughs> um, but we're getting there. So, so I, I think a lot of the things we talked about, a lot of the things you, you uh, have been uh, talking about in the in the concept uh, that, that you were referring to, the, the plastics to bio concept, uh, already quite some time ago, I think we're now getting to the point where they're, they're becoming reality. Now, the title on your LinkedIn page, I mentioned it earlier, is, is basically to cut emissions by one gigaton during your career. Now, how, how close are you? How, what are the things you're, you're aiming to do in the next steps mm. of, of your career to, to reach or to even overachieve that, that yeah. target? Now, the concepts I've written so far add up to more than 50 gigatons a year in terms of uh, annual CO2 savings. Mm. Or uh, it's not only savings, but it, it also includes uh, creation of uh, carbon capture uh, solutions, natural-based, basically. Now, it's impossible to say if I've exceeded the one gigaton, mm. when I will exceed and so on. But uh, I will continue talking about these topics, about the concepts. I'm creating new ones in the field of uh, not only bioeconomy, circular economy, but also uh, in terms of regular economy, like the linear uh, mm. economy model. Um, I, th- I think sectors I, I, I'm still looking forward to enter are uh, sectors that are consuming a lot of natural resources, mm. including, let's say, textiles. That's very interesting. Composites. Yeah. Uh, the food sector is definitely a, a must. Yeah. Uh, one of the concepts I wrote uh, includes uh, the reduction of meat consumption and the reduction of food waste. Uh, if we reduce both of them by 50%, we mm. end up uh, releasing so much land, about between two and three billion yeah. hectares in the world, if we reforest that, we can capture uh, in 20, 30 years' time 50 gigatons of CO2 every year. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I've been promoting that to uh, the large retail organizations, the food uh, wholesalers in the world, and uh, many of them are uh, focusing on that. 
um, primarily on the on the uh, food waste side for time mm-hmm. being. The meat consumption is taking a bit longer to mm. uh, adjust the way of thinking in in, in the in the consumer's world, but it's it's definitely something that's that's growing. Um, mm. There are many countries in the world where we are eating excess amounts of uh, mm. animal protein. We we need about depending on the calculations uh, around uh, let's say 70 grams mm-hmm. for uh, of protein um, for men like us so it's it's really we don't need to eat three four hundred grams of uh, meat every day mm-hmm. because we get protein from other food stuff as well we often think that protein only comes mm-hmm. from meat yeah when there is also in cereals there's um, there's proteins in in carrots. Yeah, it's, it's small amounts, but it adds up. And and I, I've been I've been listening to a BBC documentary very recently about precision fermentation, yeah. which which yeah. was a, a new concept yeah. to, to me. But it it it's about basically how can you artificially, uh, in quotation marks, uh, produce uh, proteins, um, and, uh, and and that is a very interesting alternative as well and naturally pros and cons like yeah. with everything yeah. and they go through that in the BBC documentary very well yeah. so so I, I would highly recommend that uh, to everyone who's who's interested in in the topic but there, there are alternatives out there yeah. uh, currently yeah we have solar foods here in Finland yes. making yes. proteins out of thin air yes. I'm right. still waiting for a big launch of a company working on a circular economy of food yeah basically we have if we think about feces and uh, Urea, we have all we need to produce proteins and fats mm. and sugars. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, hygiene is something that needs to be taken care of, yeah. but there are processes. Yeah. You can yeah. alter it, treat, you can uh, do other things to, to make it hyg- hygienic. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Very good. The coffee is empty yeah. and it's time to wrap up this uh, episode of the Circular Coffee Break. Thanks a lot. Tommy, for joining uh, me today. Really interesting topics, and I could continue the uh, the conversation for hours. Likewise. So um, let's see. Maybe you you come back one one of these days, and we jump into more detail on on some of the topics. Excellent. Thanks, Michael. So. Um, Quickly, before we wrap up, uh, if you have any comments, ideas, suggestions, please let us know. Uh, Leave a comment either on the podcasting platform of your choice or send us a note at uh, info at taiwa.com. We're always looking forward to new ideas and and insights. We're still learning as we move forward and continuously adjusting. So eager to hear from all of you. Uh, Also, please remember to subscribe to stay in the loop on new episodes. Um, New episodes will drop on a two-weekly rhythm um, and we have a, a long list of very interesting guests lined up for the for the coming shows so uh, really looking forward to those i'm looking forward to seeing all of you here on the circular coffee break <laughs>